You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. It is time for some more fun with Hernan Cortez and his gang of Spanish conquistadors as they try and wrest control of Mexico from Emperor Montezuma and the Aztec Empire. Hope you are all well. Here is part five in our series. Last time, we left Cortez at a crossroads. The Spanish had reached Tenochtitlan in the Valley of Mexico and entrenched themselves in the city. And while history isn't totally clear, we do know that the Spanish would take advantage of the hospitality of the Aztecs and take Montezuma hostage. With the emperor as his prisoner, Cortes would then go about extracting as much tribute from the Aztec people as possible, and at the same time plot to take control of all of Mexico. It was an ambitious plan, but if it worked, Cortes would be immensely wealthy, and the Spanish crown would be extraordinarily grateful for his actions. However, in the spring of 1520, Cuban governor Diego Velazquez would send an army to Mexico in a rebuke of Cortes. This new force was 800 to 1100 men, the number varies depending on the source, and were under the command of Panfilo de Narvaez, the conquistador I have made fun of more than any other explorer in the history of this program, for his equal parts of cruelty and incompetence. Narvaez and his expedition would land near Veracruz, and send out three men to go and chat with the garrison at the fledgling settlement. By the way, Narvaez would probably have liked to have just marched in and started a fight with Cortez's men, but the Spanish crown had sent an official to oversee the expedition, and Spaniards killing Spaniards was frowned upon. This official was Lucas Vasquez de Ayun, and he would advise Narvaez to seek a peaceful resolution to the events unfolding. This is important as it will give Cortes some time to react to this new threat. In Veracruz, the garrison was under the command of Captain Gonzalo de Sandoval, a trusted ally of Cortes. So, when Narvaez's three negotiators arrived in Veracruz, Sandoval would promptly pack them up and send them to Cortes in Tenochtitlan. There, Cortes treated the men royally. He showed them all the treasure the Spanish had accumulated and described the riches to come. He would then load them up with bribes and send them back to Narvaez. Cortes would also have a message delivered to Narvaez, seeking a peaceful solution to their awkward situation. He offered to join forces with Narvaez, but he never suggested surrendering power to the man. Cortes, of course, knew that this was never going to happen. He was basically stalling at this point and putting into effect a bigger scheme of co-opting Narvaez's army. Cortes did this in several ways. First, the three negotiators, who were now in Cortez's pocket, came back telling everyone about the riches of Tenochtitlan and how successful Cortez had been. Second, Cortez had some bribes delivered to a trusted friend he knew within Narvaez's army. This man distributed the bribes to some of Narvaez's captains and key personnel. 
Cortes also sent a bribe to Lucas Vasquez de Ayun, the representative of the Spanish crown. And with that, seeds of division were now planted in the ranks of Narvaez's army. Men began to whisper, hey, this Cortes guy is making bank. Get rid of him? Why not join him? Narvaez would head to Sempuala, where he would set up his main base. Also, he would get annoyed with Ayun, the crown's representative, for constantly looking over his shoulder and offering advice that he did not want. Thus, Narvaez had Ayon put on a ship and sent back to Cuba. This is really not a huge deal, but it will help make Ayon sympathetic to Cortez when he reports back to the Spanish crown. So, Cortez knew that he would have to deal with Narvaez, so he did something very risky. He divided his forces. He would leave approximately 120 men under one of his captains, Pedro de Alvarado, to watch over things in Tenochtitlan. Cortez would then take approximately 250 to 300 men and head east. In order to move quickly, he left most of his artillery, the cannons and arquebuses, in Tenochtitlan. Now, let us not make any bones about what Cortez was planning. He would not relent to Narvaez, and he vowed to fight his countrymen if necessary. He would say, quote, death to him and anyone who argues about the matter, end quote. One note about Cortez's force. Despite being inferior to Narvaez's army in numbers, these were now hardened and experienced men. And just as important, they were heavily invested in Cortez. They did not want to have Narvaez take over, as that would threaten their shares of treasure that they were due. Now, one thing I want to mention is that at this time, Cortez would claim that he learned that Narvaez was in communication with Montezuma, with the emperor offering to help Narvaez in exchange for his freedom and Cortez's death. I'm skeptical about this because there just wasn't that much time for Narvaez and Montezuma to become pen pals, especially when you factor in the distance between the two, and more importantly, the language barrier. Any sort of communication would have been very simple at this time. Thus, the idea that they were plotting together just smells wrong to me. Perhaps it was just a rumor that Cortez used to cast Narvaez and Montezuma as scheming villains, which would help disparage Narvaez in the eyes of the Spanish crown, and prop up Cortez as the true and brave hero, worthy of the support of the king and queen. So, Cortez and his army would march east. The exact date is hard to discern, but if I am correct, it would have been roughly around May 1st. At Clascala, they would meet up with a small contingent of soldiers dispatched from Veracruz under the command of Captain Gonzalo de Sandoval. The combined force would then continue on toward a confrontation with Narvaez. Now, let us take stock of this situation. Narvaez had at least three times more men than Cortez. In addition, he had 20 cannons, 80 arquebuses, and an equal number of war horses. Cortez had a few horses and a handful of arquebuses. That's it. Cortez was pretty much outgunned and outmanned at every turn. Narvaez probably felt pretty confident about his situation. Thus, as Cortez's army advanced east, he dispatched some emissaries to find out the intentions of Cortez. About 45 miles from Sempuala, the emissaries reached Cortez and his army. One of these emissaries was a man named André de Duero, who had helped Cortez organize his own expedition to Mexico. The two men trusted and respected one another. Duero would advise Cortez to submit to Narvaez, believing Narvaez's numbers would overwhelm Cortez's men in a fight. But Cortez refused, saying he only answered to the king. And thus the die was cast. A fight was inevitable. In Sempuala, Narvaez readied his army. It is said that he offered 2,000 pesos to the man who killed Cortez, as well as Captain Sandoval. But even as that happened, André de Duero and other Cortez allies were greasing the palms of the men they felt could be flipped to Cortez's side. I've read that upwards of a fifth of Narvaez's men were set to join Cortez if the opportunity presented itself. Meanwhile, Cortez would prepare for the upcoming confrontation. He had gotten detailed information as to the makeup of Narvaez's camp, 
meaning the numbers and locations of men and artillery and supplies and so forth. Armed with this information, Cortez elected to make his move. He would not wait for Narvaez to come to him, and instead set out to attack his enemy at his camp in Sempoala. This attack would take place on May 28th and would be a night assault. Cortez's strategy was simple, yet wise. He would use speed, stealth, and surprise to neutralize his enemy's strengths. Cortez's army advanced on Sempoala in the rain and in the dark. It was muddy and mucky, and the men were drenched. Yet here, the discipline of Cortez's soldiers paid off, and they did not waver or complain. The weather really played to Cortez as Narvaez and his officers did not expect an attack in such conditions. Also, the rain would help cover the sounds of Cortez's advancing army. Still, the advance, in the dark and in the wet, was dangerous. Near Sempoala, two of Cortez's men were swept away by a fast-running river. As they neared Narvaez's camp, Cortez's men came upon a pair of sentries. One was captured, but the other managed to escape, running to Sempoala. When the guard reached Narvaez, he and his officers were slow to react. Some doubted an attack would come in the rain, or at night, and others did not believe that Cortez could have reached Sempoala so quickly. Eventually the arm would be raised, but it would be too late. The attack had already begun. One contingent of soldiers would make straight for the artillery and seize it. Another group of soldiers went for the war horses, cutting their girth straps, making them unrideable. Thus, two of Narvaez's most important assets had been neutralized. Speaking of Narvaez, the man did not even have time to get dressed for the fight. He would meet his attackers in his bare feet while wielding a two-handed broadsword. He would, however, be overwhelmed quickly, getting stabbed in the eye with a pike for his efforts. By the way, the few drawings I have seen of Narvaez always show him with an eye patch. The engagement that followed would last for no more than an hour, with the capture of Narvaez taking much of the fight out of his men. The three-to-one manpower odds Narvaez had enjoyed had never been much of a factor, as many of the men set out the melee, while others gave up after seeing their leaders overcome. When it was all done, fifteen of Narvaez's men would be killed, while Cortez would only lose two. Narvaez would be hauled in front of Cortez in chains, blood clotting his eye socket. It was a humiliating defeat. In one night, the man had lost its entire army to Cortez. All in all, it had been a disaster for Narvaez and his patron, Governor Valasquez. As a note, Narvaez would spend the next two years in prison at Veracruz before being sent back to Spain. In 1528, he would lead an expedition to Florida, looking to conquer some other great native land and make a fortune. He would fail, and all but four of his 300-man force would die on the ill-fated Narvaez expedition, which is an episode we did a while back, and I recommend you listen to it if you have not already done so. Narvaez would be amongst the dead, drowning in the Gulf of Mexico. And with that, enough of Panfilo de Narvaez. Cortez had acted boldly and decisively, and as a result, he had won a great victory. His bribes had paid off big time. The men of Narvaez's expedition quickly signed on with Cortez, convinced that following him was the road to riches. Now, the defeat of Narvaez would bring Cortez a great windfall in the form of men and supplies. He added upwards of a thousand men, eighty horses, plus a bunch of arquebuses and crossbows and cannons. And then there were the supplies Narvaez had brought with him, food and wine and even livestock. Things were going great, right? Well, we know what that means. When something is going great, it seems inevitable that something bad is going to happen. And something bad did happen. Not long after defeating Narvaez, Cortez would receive a message from Tenochtitlan. It was from the man he had left in command of the city, Captain Alvarado. The message? Tenochtitlan was in revolt. Come quickly. Ah, revolt. In hindsight, you could see this coming a mile away. There was no way hundreds of thousands of Aztecs were going to let a couple of hundred invaders run their world, not without a fight. So let's find out what happened. 
Before Cortes departed the city, he had given his blessing for the Aztecs to celebrate the festival of Tashcatl, which was dedicated to the god Tezcatlipoca, one of the central gods in the Aztec pantheon. The festival was conducted from roughly May 5th to May 22nd, which is the driest part of the year. It is an offering to the gods before the onset of the rains, which were critical to the crops in the area. Now, the narrative about this time frame is muddled as we get some conflicting stories, but here's the rundown with some red flags. After the departure of Cortes, the Spanish commander in the city, Captain Pedro de Alvarado, said that the mood of the native population changed. He said that Montezuma became moody and petulant. The people stopped bringing food and water to the Spanish compound, and servants no longer came to wash clothing or clean the palace. Rumors began to spread that the Aztecs were planning on revolting, and the Spanish would be used as human sacrifices at the conclusion of the upcoming festival. Alvarado says that he extracted a confession, under torture, from some natives involved with the festival, that there was indeed a plan to attack the Spanish. What if all of this is true, we don't really know. But it is likely that tensions were running high in the capital, and the Aztecs were, almost assuredly, planning on how to proceed should a revolt take place. The departure of Cortes may have emboldened them as well. But we do need to understand that Alvarado is a sketchy source, as he was trying to justify the actions that are about to take place. So, several days into the festival, there was a celebration called the Serpent Dance, which was held at a place called the Patio of Dances, which was a large area part of a greater temple. It had three gates and could hold thousands of people. The Serpent Dance event was attended by the elite of the Aztec society. There were nobles and priests and military heroes and leaders. It was an exotic celebration, with five to six hundred dancers and a few thousand onlookers. They were all unarmed. As the event progressed, Captain Alvarado led sixty or so of his men to the patio of dances, as well as upwards of a thousand class column warriors, and positioned them around the three gates. Alvarado said he was there to make sure the Aztec lords weren't using the situation to plot mutiny. But many historians believe that Alvarado went there intent on punishing the Aztec nobles, who he felt were plotting to kill the Spanish. Others claim that Alvarado and his men went to watch the celebration, but upon seeing the riches worn by the Aztec nobles, gold jewelry and gems and so forth, were overwhelmed by greed and attacked them. Whatever the answer, the result would be horrific. At some point during the celebration, the Spanish closed the gates to the patio of dances. Alvarado supposedly then yelled out, Let them die, and the massacre began. Musket shots rang out. Men advanced with swords and spears and pikes. The shots from the arquebuses freaked out the Aztecs, and people began to rush away in all directions, many trampled by their own family and friends. The Spanish and their Indian allies were merciless. They cut through the unarmed Aztecs, killing everyone. It was a bloodbath. Those who tried to fight back were killed. Those who surrendered were killed. Anyone who hid was killed. An account from an Aztec survivor said this about the massacre, quote, Some tried to escape, but the Spaniards murdered them at the gates while they laughed. Others climbed the walls, but they could not save themselves. Others entered the communal house, where they were safe for a while. Others lay down among the victims and pretended to be dead. But if they stood up again, they, the Spaniards, would see them and kill them. The blood of the warriors ran like water as they ran, forming pools which widened as the smell of blood and entrails fouled the air. And the Spaniards walked everywhere, searching the communal houses to kill those who were hiding. They ran everywhere. They searched every place. End quote. Only a handful of people managed to survive the slaughter. The Spanish then went about plundering the bodies of the dead, snatching up precious stones, pearls, necklaces, bracelets, and anything they deemed of value. Well, as you can imagine, this slaughter is not going to go unnoticed by the Aztecs. Soon, drums began to sound from atop the Great Pyramid. These were war drums. 
The Spanish had finally pushed the Aztec people too far. Rebellion was at hand. Captain Alvarado gathered his force and marched back to their compound at the Palace of Cats, fighting the Aztec people every step of the way. As this was happening, the remaining men back at the palace went into action. Remember, in addition to Montezuma, the Spanish had imprisoned a host of Aztec nobles who Cortes had learned were plotting rebellion against him. This included Cacamatzin, the king of Texcoco, as well as Cuitlahuac, Montezuma's brother. All of these nobles, with the exception of Cuitlahuac and Montezuma, were executed. Man, lots of slaughter going on here. The breath of the killing makes many historians believe that all of it was premeditated, which makes sense. Alvarado was, after all, only following in the footsteps of his boss, who had done this exact same thing in Cholula the previous year. Alvarado suspected the Aztecs were up to something, and he had responded with a brutal display. However, if he thought the massacre would cow the Aztecs, he was badly mistaken. They had been enduring months of uncertainty, even humiliation, and the attack finally sent them over the edge. So, two things that happened quickly after the massacre at the Festival of Tashkotl. First, to the dismay of his men, the four ships built by the Spanish as a way to escape Tenochtitlan were burned by the Aztecs. And second, the Aztecs began to dismantle the bridges on the causeways leading in and out of the city. The Spanish were now trapped. It was time for a siege. Alvarado and his men used their arquebuses and cannons to disperse the Aztecs when they tried to swarm the walls of their compound. But around them, the insurgency would grow every day. Things were bleak for the Spanish and their Colon allies. Food and fresh water were in short supply, and their numbers were no match for the Aztecs, so a forced breakout was impossible. The Spanish even hauled up their hostages, Cuitlahuac and Montezuma, to the top of the walls and had them request their people to cease their attacks. But this was not working. Again, the Spanish had just pushed things too far. Alvarado could only try and smuggle an urgent message out of the city, begging Cortez for his return eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, for the second time in a few months, Hernan Cortez found himself on a forced march between the eastern shores of Mexico and Tenochtitlan. He had with him a thousand or so men. This included a hundred cavalry. Also, at Tlaxcala, 2,000 native warriors would join him on his march west. Cortez's army would approach Tenochtitlan through the city of Texcoco. By the way, you can see a map of all these places we are talking about on our website, explorerspodcast.com. The march into Texcoco would have been grim. No longer were the streets filled with awed native peoples and welcoming dignitaries. Now they were mostly deserted. Smoke billowed up from the Aztec capital. Reports would come to Cortez, and he learned that Alvarado and his men were still alive, trapped in the palace complex. From Texcoco, Cortez and his army would march around the northern tip of the five lakes that made up the chain of lakes in the Valley of Mexico, and head for the city of Clacopan. He did this because the causeway from Clacopan to Tenochtitlan was the shortest of the routes into the capital. Also, he had received reports that the other causeways were blocked or had had their bridges removed. From Clacopan, Cortez paused his army and considered the next step. 
Many advised him to stay put and forced the Aztec armies to come to him out in the open where he could use his artillery and cavalry to great advantage. But Cortes was not one to wait around and let things come to him. On June 24, 1520, after Mass, he mounted his horse and led his army into Tenochtitlan across the Clacopan Causeway. The march across the causeway was ominously quiet. All around the Spanish, the waters were completely devoid of canoes. And once in the city, it was like entering a ghost town. No one was in the streets or at the market. You might think that the Aztecs were purposely allowing Cortes into the city, and that might have been the case. But one explanation for the silent populace was that the city had gone into an 80-day period of mourning after the massacre at the festival of Tashkadal. No matter, it must have creeped out the Spanish. At the palace of Ashayakats, Captain Alvarado and his men would rejoice at the arrival of Cortes and his army. They were starving and exhausted. The first thing Cortes did was find out what had happened, and he would be none too pleased to discover the details about the massacre. Alvarado would try and explain what happened, but the captain general was furious at the idiocy. It was here that Cortes probably knew that resting control of Mexico in a relatively peaceful manner was beyond him. Tenochtitlan was, by all descriptions, a jewel, and no one, not even Cortes, wanted it destroyed. But with the population in rebellion, such a thing would be difficult. Still, Cortes would make one last attempt to salvage his dreams. For this, he would turn to Montezuma, the emperor of the Aztec people. The Spanish say that Montezuma was a broken, shell-shocked man at this point. He was in chains at all times and did what he was told. Also, the people despised him for what he had allowed to happen. Now, as we discussed last time, some people dispute this caricature. They say it was more of a concoction of later writers who found an easy narrative to describe Cortes's shocking conquest of the Aztecs. No matter the answer, Montezuma either refused to talk to his people or he convinced Cortes that the people no longer respected him and anything he said would only be ignored. He then suggested that Cortes free his brother, Huitlauwek, who he said would go and try and talk down the insurgents. Cortes would agree to this plan, and it would be a huge mistake. Montezuma's brother, once released, became the leader of the Aztec resistance. I have read some sources say that Montezuma was removed as emperor and Huitlauwek given the title. Other sources say that Quilauac didn't actually become emperor until after Montezuma's death. Others have speculated that Montezuma, knowing that he was no longer a viable leader, engineered the release of Quilauac and told him to take command of the empire. Again, we don't know if any of that is true. In the end, all of this really doesn't matter, because now, with Quilauac as their leader, the Aztecs intensified the siege of the Spanish. The fighting around the palace of Ashayakats would rage on. We won't do a blow-by-blow blow of the fighting, but it was pretty intense. The Spanish would send out sorties during the day, trying to break the Aztec resistance, but to no avail. The Aztecs, the Spanish said, were enraged by all that had occurred and fearlessly threw themselves at their enemies. Also, as we noted in an earlier episode, the Aztecs began to adapt to the Spanish tactics and technology. Example, they set up barricades in the streets of Tenochtitlan, which forced the Spanish cavalry to slow down or stop, thus reducing their effectiveness in a fight. So, for a week, vicious hand-to-hand -hand fighting would continue. The Aztecs would use flaming arrows to try and light the wood roofs on fire. And all day they would taunt the Spanish, saying they would make sacrifices out of them and cut out their hearts. The attacks were unrelenting, and the Spanish were exhausted. Hundreds of men were now injured, and dozens were dead. Cortes would be injured in one of the melees, his hand getting smashed. Cortes would make a final appeal to Montezuma, ordering the man to try and calm his people. The emperor would refuse, saying, quote, I wish only to die, end quote. But Cortes would still have the emperor brought to the walls of the palace in an effort to quell the revolt, but it was useless. The Spanish sources claim that they tried to protect the emperor with their shields, 
but Montezuma's people showered him with arrows and rocks, badly injuring him. He would then die a few days later from his injuries. Aztec sources say that Montezuma was killed by the Spanish and thrown off the wall. I tend to believe this latter theory, as the Spanish probably realized Montezuma was worthless to them at that point, and even a detriment, and so they just got rid of him. No matter the details, Montezuma would be dead. We will talk a bit more about the man at the end of this episode, but now back to Tenochtitlan. Cortez, recognizing that his position in the city was untenable, made the decision to make a run for it. The plan was to catch the Aztecs by surprise and try and exit the city at night. The only viable route was the Clacopan Causeway. However, there was a major issue as the Aztecs would remove bridge sections of the causeway at night. For this, the Spanish hastily constructed a huge portable bridge. This would be carried by 40 class columns and used to span any gaps in the causeway. Another issue was treasure. The Spanish had tons of it, literally tons of it. Writer Buddy Levy said that there were eight tons of gold and silver and gems. Cortez had a bunch of this packed up, and with the rest, he told the men to take what they wanted. The soldiers, giddy at the sight of all the treasure, began to load up their pockets and satchels with loot. Many of the men, especially the newer soldiers, those who had come with Narvaez, overloaded themselves with treasure, and they will pay a price for it later. The Spanish and their class colon allies would slip out of the palace of Ashayakats just after midnight on July 1st, 1520. It was foggy and there was a light rain, which was perfect as it would provide cover for Cortez's army. The escape from Tenochtitlan went pretty well for the Spanish at first. A detachment of 200 men under Gonzalo de Sandoval led the retreat along with the portable bridge. However, moving thousands of people is not exactly a quiet affair, and sooner than later, someone saw what was happening and the alarm was raised. Drums sounded from atop the great temple, and all around the Spanish came the enraged Aztecs. By this time, many of the Spanish were on the Clacopan causeway strewn out for miles. The portable bridge was laid down, and it was effective in moving the Spanish across the first gap in the causeway, but the fast-approaching Aztec canoes were everywhere. The fight out of Tenochtitlan and across the Clacopan causeway would be best described as chaotic. On the causeway, the Spanish could not use their war horses or cannons, and as time passed, the number of Aztecs only increased. The Spanish forces fought their way west, but the Aztec numbers were overwhelming. The Spanish could not fight cohesively, and the Aztecs were able to harass them continuously, firing arrows from their canoes, or rushing up the causeway sides and trying to use their numbers to overrun their enemies. Some men, weighed down by treasure, slipped and fell or were dragged into the waters of Lake Texcoco to drown or be subdued. There is one place in the causeway called the Toltec Canal, which became a major bottleneck. This was, if I have figured out this whole mess correctly, a second large gap in the causeway. Unfortunately for the Spanish, they didn't have any other portable bridges, and thus they had to climb down into the canal and cross to the other side. This was, as you can imagine, a really slow process. However, it would become really deadly once the Aztecs arrived in force. It didn't take long for the Toltec Canal to be a mass of drowned men and horses. It was said that there were so many bodies in the canal, a person could get to the other side by walking on the bodies of the dead. Still, the Spanish and the Collins fought on, because retreating offered nothing but death. The flight out of Tenochtitlan would be a disaster. It would be called La Noche Triste, the Sad Night, or the Night of Sorrows. The exact numbers of dead is not exactly known, but the number most quoted is between four and eight hundred. Six hundred is a solid guess, meaning at least half of Cortez's men. The Klaus Collins, by the way, were hit equally as hard, losing roughly four thousand of their eight thousand men. Also gone were all the cannons, most of the gunpowder, and many of the arquebuses and horses. And we can't forget about all the armor and weapons, such as shields and swords. Also gone was the treasure. 
tons of it, most of it condemned to the bottom of Lake Texcoco. Cortez, who was injured in the fighting on the causeway, would survive along with his key commanders, Alvarado, Ordaz, and Sandoval. La Malinche, Cortez's translator, also survived. Martin Lopez, the shipbuilder who led the construction of the four brigantines the previous spring on the lake, also survived. I mention him because he will be important to our story later. Cortez would rally the survivors and press them north and then east, aiming for Cala, which was about 50 miles away and over the mountains. He needed to regroup and recuperate from the disaster of La Noche Triste. In Tenochtitlan, the Aztecs would celebrate their victory. They stripped the dead Spanish of their clothing and armor and weapons. The injured were taken to the temples, where they were sacrificed to Huitzilopochtli, the god of war. A group of about 80 Spaniards, who had not made it across the causeway and retreated to the palace of Cats, would be forced to surrender. They would also be sacrificed. In all of this, the Aztecs made one strategic blunder. They did not pursue Cortes in earnest. A quick follow-up may have forced the Spanish, who were exhausted and lacking in artillery, into a fight that they were not ready for. It would have given the Aztecs a good chance to wipe out the invaders before they could reach safety. But that did not happen. Instead, Cortes and his beleaguered army would limp east toward Cala, And that is where we will leave them for today. Battered and beaten, but we should note, not broken. Wow, what an episode. The battle with Narvaez, the massacre at the festival of Tashkadal, and then La Noche Triste. These were all huge moments in our story, and they all come in a relatively short time frame. I do want to say that the crushing defeat Cortez had experienced was very much of his own doing. No, he had not specifically incited the revolt, but the city had been primed for such an eruption for a long time. Cortez had even been warned that things were getting dangerous. He could have departed the city in March or April, loaded with tons of treasure. But he had lingered, letting his greed and ego get the better of him. Cortez also miscalculated by marching back into Tenochtitlan at the end of June. It was an island that had only one way off. That is a terrible situation to put your army into. Also, the compact streets of the city limited the effectiveness of his soldiers, especially the cavalry. Perhaps if Cortez had marched in and collected his men and loot and departed, he would have been all right. But he had not, again trying to salvage his dream of taking control of all of Mexico. That would leave him and his army at their most vulnerable since they had arrived in Mexico over a year before. So, in our next episode, we will follow Cortez as he rallies his forces and devises a new strategy to conquer Tenochtitlan and the Aztec Empire. Now, before we go today, I do have one person I want to talk about, and that is Montezuma. I've spent the past couple of months reading and researching and trying to understand the man, and I admit it is difficult. Traditionally, the Spanish sources have depicted him as this weak-willed, anxiety-ridden man, and we've talked about this. However, I do want to add that some argue this view was promoted by the native people in the aftermath of the collapse of the Aztec Empire. The Aztecs had lost, and someone needed to be made into a scapegoat. Montezuma fit that bill. All of this makes Montezuma a villain to the native peoples. He was the guy who had gotten them into a colossal mess due to his ineffectual leadership and lack of vision. However, I do want to note that a lot of people have revisited the legacy of Montezuma over the years. They say the classic view of Montezuma, as a weak-willed and superstitious leader, was simply not true. Some even paint him as a symbol of resistance and defiance. All of this makes him a hard person to get a hold of. You just don't know what is true and what is not. Ultimately, as I have said in the past, my best guess is that there is a bit of truth in all of the depictions. Today, we remember Montezuma in many ways. There are several species of animals and plants named after him, as well as a river, a waterfall, and a volcano. 
He appears in countless stories, including novels and songs and films and even video games. And there is even a brewery named after him, located in Monterey, Mexico. That, to me, is pretty cool. So, that is it for today, part five in our series on Hernan Cortez. I hope you've enjoyed things thus far, and I will see you next time. Thank you again for listening.